love is such an important aspect of following Christ that Jesus himself said that love is the key characteristic that identifies us as his disciples. In John chapter 13, Jesus set the standard that we should love one another just as I have loved you. He adds, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, seeing that Jesus' love is the standard, it's worth asking the question, how has Jesus loved us? What are the marks we should be looking for if we are to love others as Christ has loved us? This is where Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, are help, it's helpful. As Paul lists out the various applications that stem from the gospel, he shows that love is an essential aspect of being transformed people who have renewed minds. As we'll see from Romans 12, we model the love of Christ by having a love that is without pretense, that's number one, a love that is without pride, and then number three, a love that is without vengeance, a love that is without pretense, a love that is without pride, and a love that is without vengeance. Paul begins with a simple statement. Let love be genuine. Now, not everybody can read Greek, and that's okay. But if you were to look at the Greek, his statement could also be translated as love is without pretense. It's not just a command. It's, it's actually a statement in that kind of form. And, and he kind of gives it like it's just a simple statement. Love, true love, real love is without pretense. Now, I think in context, we can imply that there's a command there. Don't love as a pretense, right? Love without pretense. Another way we could say it is do not let your love become like a stage play that presents a false self while hiding the real self, while the the real person is kind of hidden away in the background. You see, by nature, real love identifies itself by giving. Not just giving, like giving money or things like that, but being self-giving. Real love is self-giving. It seeks the good of others, even if it means sacrificing what is good for the self. Genuine love is a gift that is given purely for the joy and for the good and for the betterment of someone else. By contrast, pretense is coming into a relationship with hidden motives, hidden agendas, hidden desires. You see, love wants nothing but pure good for the one sitting next to us. Pretense is wanting something else. You can put it this way. Love primarily wants to do good for. So think of that preposition, doing good for a person. Pretense is wanting good from a person. So there's a, even a difference in direction. When you truly love someone, you want good things for them. When you love with pretense, you want good things from them. In other words, you are only in a relationship because of what you can get from them, not what you can give them. Not what's good for them, but what you get from. It could be anything. You might be in a relationship with other people because of, it might lead to a better reputation, It might make you feel important and special. They might be the way that you have your needs met or your desires satisfied. 
It's even possible that we may be approaching others in pretense without even knowing it. Like, like none of us would, would like to, to actually say, hey, yes, I'm, I'm loving with pretense. <laughs> like we'd all like to think that we love without pretense. But the human heart is so complicated that sometimes a person's motives or agendas can be even hidden from their own sight. Like they don't always know what they're after in a relationship. In a fallen world, we rarely love with the pure love that Paul is describing in this passage. And I think that's helpful to, to keep in mind because we're not just aiming to say, check mark, check mark, I love people. It's what kind of love we're bringing. A love that is absolutely free from selfish desires and a love that is able to distinguish between uh, desires that are for self and desires that are for others. At the present, we're we're so mingled with good and bad motives that it's kind of hard to discern what's what, right? Like what's for me and what's for other people? What do I want? And then what do I want for other people? What am I looking to give versus what I'm looking to take? And the worst part is, this is, this is what's hammered me in the heart time and time again this week. We may fully convince ourselves that we sincerely love people. And yet still, once in a while, you just hear those whispers of the secret motive, the secret agenda that kind of sleeps in the heart. How they make us feel, how they, how they make us feel important or, or what they do for us. Now, here's the thing. I think the real proof of love, if you really want to know if you love someone, let them disappoint you. If you really want to know if you love someone, wait till they offend you, betray you, or make you mad. We know that love is without pretense. Love is without an agenda. Love is without a hidden motive. When we experience the firsthand realities of someone else's fallenness and we want to love them anyway, that is love without pretense. Loving someone in pretense is when we don't get from them what we thought we would, we stop loving them or we cut them off. We don't speak to them anymore. That's love with pretense. Love without pretense can be disappointed and say, I didn't get from you what I thought I would, but I'm still here because it's not for me. It's for you that I'm here. I'm not here to take from you. I'm here to give to you. And so I will keep loving you even if I don't get the things I wanted from you. You see, love is without pretense when a wife loves her husband, even when he takes her for granted. Love without pretense is when a, hum, a, a husband humbly sacrifices for his wife, even if she treats him rudely and speaks to him wrongly. You see, friends love each other without pretense. When one friend says something, steps in it, totally ruins expectations, and yet the other person is willing to keep going. That's love without pretense. Constant, committed love that is there whether we get what we want or not, is the heart of all other things that Paul says in verses 19 to 13. What does love without pretense look like when it comes to daily life application? Well, first off, you hate what's evil. Because we're so committed to see good accomplished in the lives of others, we detest anything that is against that good. Friends, as a pastor, when, when I express concern about your marriage or your relationship or a sin problem, it's not because we're being nosy. 
It's not because the church is trying to get in your business. It's because it's, it hates anything that is against your good. We hate it when a man ruins his marriage. We hate it when a sister divides because of an offense and isolates. That's not for their good. That's the opposite of good. And because we are so committed to seeing good done in other people's lives, we do the awkward work of being against it. I hate it when you get into such arguments with your wife or your husband that you feel like you have to divorce. Why? Because it's not good for you. We should hate it when a brother is found out to have a porn addiction. Why? Because it's not good for him. That that kind of complacency that we sit back and it's none of our business. No, no, no. We are committed to the good. We hate evil which means that sometimes we do the awkward work of saying things that other people don't want to say. Why? Because we want your good. And what you think is good for you may not be what's best for you. Don't trust yourself that you can decide for yourself what is good. People have done that all through history and look at what it's gotten them. It's in the body of believers that we guard each other for the good, that we watch over each other's lives Hebrews 3.13 says that we come together, that we're with one another. Why? So that each of us will keep one another from being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Do you hear the assumption of that passage? You are at this moment being tempted to harden yourself against the Lord. Little sins, pride, complacency, laziness, anger, maybe political idolatry, maybe career idolatry, maybe self-righteousness. You're at this moment being tempted to be hardened into a a life against God. And it's in a body like this that because we love each other, we plead with one another not to do that. We keep each other soft, so to speak, rather than hard to sin. We, We keep each other questioning what motives we have. We seek sincere love and a sincere life. We don't like it. We hate it. When somebody does something that can harm themselves in their relationship with the Lord. So when you're here, you're sitting with people who are your loving guardians, who are looking to do you good. If a church is truly a church committed after the love of Christ, then we're going to guard one another from being hardened by sin. And it takes humility on your part to receive that ministry. Paul goes on to say that in addition to hating the evil that could destroy another's life and clinging to good, we should also be competitive. Ever thought of competition as a biblical thing? You should be competitive. That is competitive in the way that you honor one another. He writes, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another. A lot of us want to put a period right there, right? Outdo one another. That's most natural. That's easiest. But he says, outdo one another. Rest of the sense, in showing honor. You see, in the ancient Roman world, only those who were of higher status received honor in a group of people. It was cl- there was a clear difference between master and slave, rich and poor, powerful and vulnerable. You'd see it when you walk into the building because the powerful are sitting in chairs the powerful, are, uh, the powerful are the ones walking through the doors. 
The poor are the ones sitting in the floor. The slaves are the ones holding open the doors. That's how you'd see it. There's every kind of delineation between who deserves to be served and who, deserve, who, who is the one that must serve. Now, you might think, oh, we're above that now. Praise God that we're sophisticated, right? Eh, I don't think we're as sophisticated as we think. We may not have Greco-Roman lords and ladies walking through our building and walking in our midst, but we do have the tendency to lord each other over one another, right? We still have that tendency to raise the high head and to think that we're better than everybody else. In our natural state, we want to just simply do that, outdo one another. We want to outpace, outachieve, overpower, and exceed above our peers. We want everyone to see how much better we are. Just wait till you get around a group of equals, people that threaten your status. I love watching rich people get together on TV because I don't see it in real life all the time. There's a side of me that loves the drama. There's a side of me that's saddened over how sinful it is. There's a side of me that's like, who's it's about to get good. <laughs> you get rich people who are comparatively equal in wealth. Oh boy, does the competition begin. It's better than watching American Gladiator. Just get us in a group of equals and then you'll see how we tend to outdo one another. We want to rise above or anytime that we feel like someone's more popular than us or someone's uh, smarter than us or someone's more influential than us, then it all comes out and it's all, the competition is laid out on the table. But in Christ, among God's people, such ambition is redeemed. It's, a, it's good to be ambitious. It's good to be competitive just in the other direction. Rather than being competitive to earn honor, or being competitive to give honor. Rather than competing with who's the tallest, who's the strongest, who's the most powerful, we compete to strengthen one another. Like who's gonna give more at this moment to each other? That's what it outdo one another in showing honor means. It means you're, you're constantly living in this way that's seeking to do good to others, even more than the good that's been done for you. Things like partiality has no place among God's people where we hang out with only the people we like, only the people we think are powerful or influential or whatever. We don't have that here and shouldn't have that here. Why? Because a gospel healthy body is one that each member receives and seeks to give honor to one another, which means that the poorest poor person who walks into our building is received like a noble king. Which means that the richest man is seen as no different than the poor man who's treated like a noble king. We see people for who they are. When people walk in, they're the image of God, the walking, talking, breathing representation image of God with his, if they're believers, indwelling spirit inside of them. I mean, this is... This is a person in whom Christ has chosen to dwell and we receive them without any consideration of their race, of their social economic background, of their status, cool factors, or anything like that. Why? Because in God's eyes, they are dignity. They are royal. We are a royal priesthood. 
And that's how we're called to show honor to one another. He goes on to add uh, that when we, when we have this kind of non-pretentious love, we serve one another. And we do it not half-heartedly, only because we should, you know, and we feel obligated to. Instead, instead we do it with a, a zeal, a fervent spirit, and ultimately as a service to the Lord. Now, when it comes to our daily, de- daily demeanor toward each other, we don't just rejoice in hope. We don't just hope, right? We don't, we, we don't just hope in somebody else. We rejoice in hope with this person. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. There are some times that we get around other people who disappoint us in a big way, right? And there are times that we just want to approach that with absolute disgust and, and uh, disappointment. We just want to write them off. But Romans, in Romans, we don't do that to people. When they fail us, when they're flawed, when their sinfulness is revealed, we don't just simply write them off. Instead, we look beyond. We hope and we rejoice in the hope. Romans 5.2 says that the hope that we have is rooted in the coming glory of God, which will transform God's people into the image of Christ. Which means that when I see another person, flawed though they may be, as easy as their sins may be for me to see, I hope in the glory to come. That person will be fully transformed. As C.S. Lewis said, if I were to see what they will be today, I'd be tempted to worship them. That I hope, and not just that, I rejoice in hope, which means I bear with their flaws, knowing and rejoicing that they they will not always be who they currently are. There will be a day that they will be perfect and righteous, sin-free, absolutely perfect and glorious. The very people we snarl our noses up at when they offend us are the people that we will one day not even be able to fathom their beauty, their grace, the glory that shines from their face. I think it's important to keep that in mind. As a pastor, certainly helped me love many of you. (laughs) It's confession time. And you might say, well, it's helped us to love you too, pastor. Then we're doing this well. (laughs) Good job. Paul adds that pretense-free love is also characterized by patience and hardship and consistency in prayer. Now, implied here is that we are praying for one another. When needs arise, we follow the example of the early church by sacrificially giving. And in 2 Corinthians 9, 11, we see that by giving to one another, we foster thanksgiving among the people of God. I've seen this so many times in Grace Church. It's, It's just amazing. When needs arise, people give. And when people give, the person who receives is... Just, it's an overwhelming evidence that God has provided. Just the gratitude that comes from that. Not for us and not for the gift itself, but for God. As we give to one another, our giving and our loving and our hospitality is a visible representation of the invisible reality of a God who gives. When we share our table, our food, our house, whatever we have... We exemplify the goodness of our Savior who has invited sinners like us to his table and made a place for us and shared what is his. The status that is his has become ours. He is the son of God and we have become sons and daughters of God. 
He shares that with us. I go and prepare a place for you. Why? So that where I am there, you may be with me also. In the epistles, you hear Paul talk about us being co-heirs with Christ. He shares. That's non-pretentious love. Pretentious love would be Christ getting and getting and getting and getting and taking and taking. But what do we see of our Savior? We see Jesus giving Sharing, what can you give him that's not already his? It's all his already. A Christ-like love is a love that is without pretense, but presents itself in daily rehearsals of Christ-like grace and self-giving. You know you're loving non-pretentiously when your love smells like the love of Christ, when it looks like the love of Christ when it tastes like the love of Christ, that's when you know you're loving like Christ and that your love is without pretense. A second aspect of Christ-like love is that it is love without pride. It suffers humbly and associates with the lowly. Paul writes, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Now, when we read things like bless those who persecute you and bless without cursing, it may not be all that apparent uh, what, w- why that is connected to humility, why that's an expression of humility. It may not be all that apparent to us. However, when you think about what it would require to bless someone who wants to kill you, then I think the humility becomes apparent, right? Right? Can you imagine, like, these people want you dead. These people want you in jail cells. They want to fine you. They want you diminished. They want you gone. And when Paul says, bless those who persecute, can you imagine the kind of humility it takes to give other people what they don't deserve? When they're trying to hurt you, to give them love. Not only does our suffering humble us, I think that's the most natural thing that we think of is when we suffer, the Lord humbles us. That's true. He makes us dependent on him. He, he shows us our need for him and he, he feeds us in his grace every day. But suffering is also an expression of the humility that's already there too. It's an expression of being a righteous sufferer, especially when we know that our suffering is not because of any wrong that we have done. Now, I think the best example we can point to is Christ himself. Jesus is the perfect man of God, right? He's the perfect God-man. You can say it either way you want to say it. Man of God, God-man, they are distinct, but they're both true. He's absolutely sinless, not even a sinful thought. Jesus could look at people and be absolutely free from any kind of inclination to hurt them, use them, anything. He absolutely loved people in the way that he should, not even a sinful thought to people, And being as perfect as he was, he was unjustly arrested and condemned. Absolutely innocent, not worthy of the judgment. And what's worse is he had the divine strength to get out of it, didn't he? When he tells Peter, he's like, why are you wielding a sword for me? Why are you waving it around like an idiot? Don't you know that I can call down angels from heaven? Not just angels, legions of angels, thousands and thousands of angels to come and fight for him. And yet, despite his righteousness, despite having the ability to get out of suffering, despite having the power to speak a word and kill all of his enemies, 
he suffered anyway. Philippians 2 says that Jesus' willingness to die was an act of humility. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, Jesus' death was many things. It was atonement. It was proof that he is the Son of God. It is a display of God's glory and majesty and justice and all those things. It is the means by which we receive forgiveness. But alongside of all of those, it is also the supreme act of humility. Jesus' aim was to bless you while he was becoming a curse for you. God made him to be a curse. Receiving the full wrath of God in full for the, punishments of, for the punishment of sin, though he did not deserve that. He deserved much better than that. And yet he humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. When we bless those who persecute us, those who annoy us, those who hate us, we are humbly laying down our lives so that they can experience the blessing of God, though they don't deserve it. I think that's what's beautiful about churches that live in persecution. Their very existence, just them being there, is a reminder of the one who blessed when he was cursed. It's not just countercultural. That's that's a cool term that we use nowadays. It's not just countercultural. It's counternatural. It goes against what we want to do. It comes it goes against what goes normal to us. When when we're when we're done uh, when wrong is done against us, our most natural thing is to drift towards self-vindication, right? To be righted, to be shown as right, to to take uh, vengeance even if we have to. You hit me, my most natural thing is I want to hit you back. That's, that's normal, right? What's not natural, though, is having a humility to bless those that hit, to bless those that hate, to bless those that have done wronged. Paul goes on to say that love without pride requires empathy. You cannot love someone if you don't empathize with them. The natural self is completely unaffected by the state of others around them. When I'm focused on myself, it's possible for me to be completely happy and rejoice and be at at the pinnacle of joy even while the person across from me is weeping and their life is a mess. When I'm when I'm in my in myself, it's like all's right in my world, so why should I be bothered? Well, the reality is the gospel calls us to a better way. The gospel calls us to a self-giving empathy. I don't know what else to call it because it says this, rejoice with those who rejoice. Not rejoice when you feel like rejoicing, rejoice when you're around people who are rejoicing. And then what else? Weep with those who weep. Not just weep when you're sad, weep when other people are sad. When a single mom comes into the room and she's dead tired, you may be so relaxed because you just walked off the cruise ship. That's a moment where you step in empathy. You become tired with her. You feel it with her. You help her through it. You walk in with the kids with her. 
Moms and dads sick of changing diapers. That's when you as the retired noble uh, grandparents step in and change diapers with them. It's a gospel empathy that doesn't just become complacent about my situation, but actually steps into the muck of somebody else's life. I'm not trying to validate whether people feel, should feel the way they feel or not. You know, we, we go completely topsy-turvy when we start to validate whether a person should feel the way they feel. You're not them, and you would hate it, and you do hate it. When you feel something and other people tell you you shouldn't feel that way. The gospel calls us to empathize, to, to put on somebody else's shoes. Let me put it a different way. The gospel calls us to put on somebody else's skin because that's what Jesus did for us. You know, before the incarnation, the son was the second person in the Trinity. There's never not been a time that the son existed. We know that, right? He's eternal, right? He's always been there. He's part of the triune God. I shouldn't even say part. He's a person in the triune God. Three, person, three, three persons, one God. That's what we believe about the Trinity. Guess what he was doing? He was basking in the glory and love of the Father. What did he need? Nothing. What was he missing? Nothing. What did he need to achieve? Nothing. What did he need to accomplish? Nothing. What did he need to do to feel fulfilled? Nothing. Absolutely self-satisfied in the triune love. All this nonsense about God made the world because he needed somebody to love. Nonsense. God was absolutely happy and perfect in the perfect love of the triune God. Our creation is merely the overflow of his self-satisfaction. Not because he needed us to be satisfied, but because he was satisfied and he wanted to share that satisfaction with us. So why then did the Son of God take on flesh? Why did he become like one of us? One of my favorite books, it's an old book, you should read it if you, if you care to. It's not that hard to read, it's just old. It's called On the Incarnation by Athanasius. Athanasius was living in a time when there's a lot of questions about who Christ was and what it meant for him to take on flesh. And here, here's what he writes on, in the incarnation. I just want you to hear this. I'm gonna to try to read it as slowly as possible so you can hear it and take it in. We were the purpose of his embodiment. And for our salvation, he so loved human beings as to come to be and appear in a human form. Let me just paraphrase all that. Why did the son humbly put on flesh? Because he loved you. Because he wanted to. Not because he needed to even, but because he loved you. It's an expression of love to put on skin, to wear it like clothing, to, to walk the earth, to have tear ducts so that he could weep at the tomb of Lazarus, to have blood veins and vessels that could burst upon impact to have a hairy, scratchy beard that gets pulled out, to have a flesh and blood wrist that hurts when you penetrate it. Why do you take on skin? Because you wore skin. And by taking on skin, he loved you. That's empathy, right? 
Hebrews says that he, become, he became as one who was exiled. He died outside the city. Why? Because we were outside the city. We were alienated from the presence of God. We were spiritual exiles. So he became an exile and died outside the city of God as a criminal. He's absolutely free from death. And yet what did he do? He died a death that rightly belongs to us. He was self-satisfied, didn't need to do that. And yet in his absolute perfection and immortality, he takes on flesh to die because that was your plight. In the old Puritans used to talk about this high God stepping into the muck and becoming a worm to die a worm's death. That's amazing love. That's, that's infinite love. So my friends, all this stuff about empathy being bad and all that kind of stuff, that's not true. The gospel compels us to show empathy. The son became like us so that we could become like him. Therefore, we should become like others so that they could become like him. Love without pride means having an empathy that loves others well. Love without pride also entails that we live in harmony with each other. That's one of the points that he makes. In other texts, harmony talks about being of the same mind, like you hear that in Philippians 2, where we have the same mind with one another. But, but any time that we're talking about harmony, unity, we're not talking about we all speak the same way, we all do the same thing, we all have the same hobbies, we all dress the same way, we all get the same tattoo, that, none of that, okay? It's not, it's not, it's not a, what, what's the word here? It's not, um, you guys can't preach, I don't know why I'm pointing at you. Um, it's, not, it's not exactness, right? We're not trying to be exact replicas of each other. That's not Christian unity. Harmony implies something else. Let's take music for an example. Any musicians in the room? Okay, I'm probably going to embarrass myself because I'm not a musician and so I'm using a music, musical illustration here. Uh, so just sit back and be quiet. If I'm wrong, email somebody else about it. <laughs> in music, harmony doesn't mean exact replication, does it? Can you imagine, I'm looking at Darla Talley because she's the local choir professor can you imagine Darla Talley walking into the room to teach her choir students how to, how to sing in harmony, and they all sing in the same tone, the same note, at the same volume? That's just yelling, right? That's not pleasant. That's not, there's nothing that sounds good about that. All, I mean, can you imagine if in our, in our worship band, they all played the bass, and the same chord, at the same time, at the same volume. It's not music, right? That's just a humming noise. It's probably going to give us tendinitis. That's not harmony. Harmony accepts the fact that there is distinction. There are distinct notes, but, but these distinct notes play a part that creates beautiful unity with other instruments and voices. It's not just about its own sound, Right In a choir, it's not just the fact that you can sing that's important. It's the fact that you can sing alongside other people and their distinct voices. In a band, it's not just the fact that you can play. It's the fact that you can play alongside other people who are making distinct noises from other instruments, from other tools. 
Each voice, each instrument, distinct in tone, distinct in volume. But why? In order to serve the greater music. You see, sometimes when you sing in harmony or you play in harmony, it requires that you sing or play more softly, and other times it requires you to sing or play more loudly. There's, a, there's an adjustment that happens. You may not always be the primary voice. Harmony, by its very existence, mandates that there are moments that you increase and moments that you decrease. Moments that you stand up, moments that you sit down, moments that you speak, moments that you listen, moments that you cry, moments that you weep with others, moments that you laugh. Harmony requires whatever the greater music needs. Now we get into big trouble when we think of church as a solo. This is my chance to shine. This is my chance to sing. My vocal range is most important. Well, that's fine. You're singing solo though. You're not singing in harmony. Harmony requires more than one, I think. Darla's cringing, so I don't know if that's true or not. But we're gonna go with it because I've got the mic. (laughs) Harmony requires more than just one. Harmony requires distinction, different volumes in that. And that's what makes it beautiful. So maybe melody is a better word. I don't know. But it's this, this ability to step back, to fade into the background sometimes, and then to step up when the moment requires, to get out of the spotlight, to turn off the mic, to sit in the chair. The moment's to turn the mic on and to stand behind here. That's what harmony requires for us. This, of course, is not, it means that we, this means that we do not become haughty where we're thinking high and lofty about ourselves, but instead we associate with the lowly. We do not just seek opportunities to exalt ourselves or hang out with other people who are important, but we hang out with those who are humble. And an aspect of that is to not think of ourselves as wise in our own sight which means that we're not so impressed with ourselves, with the way that we think, with the way that people think about us. We're not walking around trying to present. Remember that pretense. We're just being ourselves. We're not wise in our own sight. We're wise because we have a relationship with the Lord. As Proverbs 3, 5 says, we don't lean on our own understanding. We don't look at our own wisdom through our own sight. We trust in the wisdom of God. So if I'm wise, it's not because I'm wise. It's because I have a wise God and I'm around wise people. We get into big trouble when we think that we're the only ones that are wise or we're the wisest ones in the room or where we start puffing up our chest about how wise we are and how many good decisions we've made. My friends, I've been in ministry long enough that I've seen this play itself out where a man starts to get a big head. People start listening. Influence begins to grow. People start asking him more and more, what do you think we should do? He gets puffed up with his wisdom, and the result is twofold. Self-sufficiency, where he begins trusting in his own wisdom instead of the Lord's, and elitism, thinking that he alone knows what's right and good. I remember times sitting with this brother, and we would say things, and we said the exact same things, but I said it wrong somehow, because it wasn't his way of saying it. My friends, you do that, as is true of this man, he's alone now. 
He's isolated. His friends are gone. He's divided. Do not be wise in your own sight unless you want to be alone. And the only eyes to see your wisdom will be your own. I think it's important to see that the church can withstand persecutors. Persecution, we've survived that. We can't survive pride. We can withstand any government lobbying kind of, any kind of oppression at us. What we can't stand is our own pride. We will fall every single time to that. So if you want to withstand, don't be prideful. If you want to fall, go ahead. So love is without pretense, love is without pride, and then finally love is without vengeance. And I'll be short on this point. Paul commands, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You know, I think sometimes when we get wronged or when an offense has happened, the most natural thing for us is to react. But Paul's telling us here not to react. Don't repay. Don't just, don't just look at what to do now, now that somebody has done something. Be intentional. When somebody says a snide remark to me, boy, man, all the memes that I want to send out about them, all the little snarky comments. Man, there's been times that somebody has offended me with a little snide remark, and then 10 minutes later, I'll be in the wife of my car, and I'll say, ha, la, 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 nerdy comment or whatever. That's what I wanted to say with them, right? I think of a good comeback like five minutes later. That's, and, and thank God that I'm a slow, I'm not good at repertoire. Boy, if I was, there'd be no filter. But the, the, the fact is, is if you've ever said something snarky about me and I've not said it back to you, it's just because you walked away before I thought of something good. <laughs> the Bible tells us not to repay evil for evil, but to be intentional about how we respond. The most natural thing is to do evil to those who have done evil towards us. Paul says, don't do that. There are times that what I want to do and what I should do are two different things. When, someone's, when I receive or I hear someone's snide remark or I receive some sort of offense, my mind might acknowledge that what I should do. For instance, like, I should show them love and honor, even knowing that they're not honoring me. But boy, does my heart lag behind. Who wants to do that, right? Nobody wants to do that. If you say that you want to do that, you're a liar. <laughs> Nobody wants to do that. If we're honest, we do not always want the good that we should do. And yet, we should still choose to do good, even if at the moment we don't have the desire to choose it. This is where our wills and what we want at that moment must be submitted to the good will of God. Whatever I want at that moment, it has to fall under the greater reign of God. C.S. Lewis once described this as good pretending, right? I have kids. My kids like to pretend. They dress up like firefighters, doctors. Sometimes Abigail dresses up like mom. Sometimes my boys dress up like me or professional baseball players. And this pretending and dressing up, it's so cute to watch them play house because they act just like me, right? It's also very discouraging. <laughs> but, but one of the things I've noticed about playing pretend and dressing up like adults is they're preparing to become adults in doing that. They're dressing up for what's to come, 
or what could come. They're dressing up as adults, though they're children, for the day that they will actually be adults and they won't be dressing up like adults anymore. They will be adults. In the same way, there is no hope that we have of being perfect like Christ right now, is there? My motives, my agenda, my sin are just too deep. There's no way in this life that I will ever be ready to perfectly image Christ. So what then? Dress up like Christ and pretend to be him anyway. That sounds wrong, but it's very practical. When we are tempted to sin, we must first ask, what is the most honorable thing to do at this moment? Lewis says that whatever honorable thing comes to mind, do it, whether you feel like it or not. Your feelings and emotions will catch up. But you pretend your way into righteousness if you have to. You do what's most level, loving. If at this moment when I'm tempted to sin against my wife, she's done something and I want to just malign her with my words, I stop, freeze and shut my mouth. What is the most honorable thing for her, for me, and for God? Oh, but I want to. I just want to say it. You don't have to, you know. No, a lot of us think that we have to, but there is a shutoff valve and he's called the Holy Spirit. He can silence that mouth really quick and you can choose a better way. Do the most honorable thing. If you wait, you know, I think of people who are reconciling with spouse or friends. If they wait for the gushy emotions to come, they're never gonna reconcile. You're not gonna have a hallmark reunion. What it's going to take is for you to say, it doesn't really matter what I want right now. I don't want to talk to my spouse at this moment. It doesn't matter. What does God want you to do? And what is most honorable? Go do that thing. Your hallmark emotions might come. They might not. Either way, let your feelings catch up. You don't have to wait for it to happen. I always feel like preaching. I don't always feel like loving my enemies. I don't always feel like forgiving someone. If I wait till I feel like a forgiving person, then you're never going to be forgiven. Sometimes I just have to trust the Lord and forgive and say, Lord, you're going to let the emotions come. That's what it means to live at peace as far as it's possible, as far as you can do. I have so much I want to say about that. As far as is possible, do everything in your power to live at peace. But I think we can summarize all the rest of this, verses 19 and 20, verses 18, 19, and 20, we can summarize by just simply loving people like Christ loves us. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Live in such a way that you trust the Lord. He's the one that will make every evil thing right. He's the one that will fix every wrongdoing. Trust him. You see, when you know that the Lord is just and he sees every wrong thing done and that he has the power and promises that he will undo the wrong, you can love your enemy in very wholesome ways. You can feed those who hate you. After all, isn't that what Christ did for you? My friends, when we think about a Christ-like love, we think of those three things, love without pretense, love without pride, love without vengeance. And I would just ask you, 
Which one of those things do you not see from the cross and the tomb of Jesus? From the cross, he loved without pretense. He died like a slave. He loved without pride. He forgave. He loved without vengeance. Everything he did was for your reconciliation. When we get to the tomb, we see it even more. There's no pretense. He died so that we can have life. There's no pride here. He died and didn't reserve the eternal life that he gained from that, the the eternal resurrected life. He shares it. There's no pride in saying, that's mine, not yours. He gives it. He loves without vengeance. How natural would it be for one of us to kick the tomb up and go, ha-ha, surprise, suckers, and then to go to town, committing revenge and all these different things. Jesus doesn't do that. He loved without pretense. He loved without pride. He loves without vengeance. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. So brothers, lay down your life for one another. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your love displayed through the Son on the cross and in his resurrection. We thank you that you love us without pretense, that you love us without pride, that you love us without vengeance. We thank you that we get to experience that love and pour that out for each other. Lord, even the Lord's Supper that we're about to take today is an example of love without pretense, love without pride, love without vengeance. When Christ's body was broken, he didn't break us. When his blood was shed, he didn't make us shed our blood for him. He hasn't given us the Lord's Supper to remind us of what we don't have. He gives us the Lord's Supper to remind us what he's given and what's to come, a table feast with him in his presence forever. And just as we're about to eat real bread and real wine, there will be a day that we will live in your real presence because there is no pretense or hidden motive with you. Help us to worship you well, Father, because of the gospel revealed through your Son. We pray this in the name of your Son, through the Spirit. Amen.